Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance, or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, it's a double dose of Pennsylvania and mining disasters as we talk about Shepton and Centralia, Pennsylvania. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Hello, and welcome to episode six of season two of the show. It is the end of October, and Halloween is upon us. It is probably my favorite time of year. It's getting colder, finally. Here in Ohio, it's taken forever to get, like, to become fall. We've had a total Indian summer. Uh, but it is finally cold enough for all of the annoying bugs to die, and they don't crawl on my screen, and for you know, to turn off the central air. So now I don't have to go and cover up vents because they make noise that comes up on the mic. It's a great time of year. 
Uh, I'm not going to do a Halloween special or a Halloween episode or anything, because quite frankly, on the show, I feel like every episode is Halloween. So what would I do different? Maybe next year. Maybe next year I'll come up with something fun and creative to do. But this year, I think I'm just going to ride it out. But it is my favorite time of year. It is probably my favorite holiday. I just want that to be known. I want that to be on the record. The other thing I want to be unknown on the record is that I want to make a correction from last episode and apologize to the good people of Chowchilla, California. It's not Chowcilla, it's Chowchilla with another H. Uh, I spelled it wrong in my notes like the very first time and never looked back, but turns out I was saying it wrong for the entire time and I do apologize. I did, I did change it in the feed and on as much branding as I could. I'll probably go back and change the episode title so it says that, but I will do that sometime. But not Chowcilla. Chowchilla. Which sounds way more Californian than Chowcilla. And makes way more sense now. But that's out of the way. Everything's out of the way. Uh, I want to talk about real quick about my friends over at the Dirty Knee Soap Company who are making awesome soap and awesome bathroom products in a myriad of scents to please pretty much everybody. If you are looking to change uh, your bathing habits and getting into some real handmade soap that is soap. It's not like this crap that you go and buy at the store. It's probably full of detergents and stuff. It is soap, plain and simple, real soap made out of real ingredients, and it's fantastic. I've been using it exclusively. It's my beard oil. It's my soap. It's my hand lotion for a little, probably, probably a little over a year now. I think I started buying it in September or so of last year. Uh, they had a they had a special back back on Facebook where you could get a free bar of soap. All you had to do was pay like for the shipping and handling. And ever since then, I have been hooked. So now I'm trying to return that favor and help them move some of this great soap. So go to dirtyneesoap.com and check it out. Uh, use STS Cast in the little uh, promo box there, and you'll get ten percent off, and I'll get some credit for the sale. Or if for some reason you don't want to do that, I have a link through a special URL on stscast.com under the support tab that will also give me credit if you go through that and use and buy some soap. So that's out of the way. I think everything is now out of the way. So we are going to play a promo from another Big Heads Media show. This one is called Wasting Time. So check it out and I will be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Chris. I'm Beth. And I'm Matt. Join us every Wednesday for Wasting Time, our podcast where we talk about pop culture, life, and our favorite things. From the movies we love to the TV shows we're obsessed with. And from politics to parenting to whatever else is on our mind. Give us a listen each Wednesday and then find us on Facebook and Twitter to tell us what you're loving. We're part of the Big Heads Media Group and we can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Come waste some time with us. All right, and tonight, like I said in the beginning, we're going to be talking about two places in Pennsylvania, and they both result around some mining mishaps, some disasters, some incidents, whatever you want to call them, Uh, but they're two very different ones. Uh, The first one is going to be Shepton, and then we're going to talk about uh, Centralia, a.k.a. the real Silent Hill. I found... Some really great resources for this stuff. I found a great book 
on Shepton. I found a great documentary on Centralia. So a lot of content, a lot of info on these these two places. Uh, the book for Shepton is phenomenal. It is called Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Music by Maxim W. Furick. And it's great. It's well-written. It's not, you know, a dry book that's just spitting this true story out at you and facts and you know it's it's really well written it's got some prose to it it's got you know it's just it's good he's got a timeline on the back that was really helpful it just says here's everything how it happened you know what was going on at the time you know times dates which was really great it's got a great cover on it uh, i've linked that in the show notes where you can hop on amazon and grab that book because there's a lot in the book that i don't think i got a chance to cover you know, but check it out if you really want to get into the whole Shepton mystery, really. Because as you will see, it is a literal rabbit hole. It will keep kind of building and building and getting stranger and stranger as the events go on. And then Centrologist has a great documentary on YouTube. I think it's kind of a defunct documentary. When I tried to visit the website for the people that originally made the film... I couldn't get into it. It seemed it was down or something was going on with it. But it is on YouTube in its entirety. And I just found I found a lot of great sources for this stuff. So, so let's jump into it. Shepton, Pennsylvania, like so many small towns in Pennsylvania, used to live, eat, and breathe coal. It was a coal mining town, like so many others. However, on August 13th, 1963, three men would enter a defunct mine at Oneida Slope No. 2. Hank Throne, Dave Fellon, and Louis Bova went down into the darkness at 7.30 a.m. Two of them wouldn't see daylight for 14 days. One would never see daylight again. Shepton is a small patch town. It's listed today as a CDP, a census-designated place, with a population of 239 according to the 2000 U.S. Census. In the mid-20th century, the coal mining industry was changing. The days of dark and dangerous mine shafts lined with rail carts was becoming a thing of the past. Strip mining was fast becoming the new norm. It was quicker and safer. During this regime change, there were some entrepreneurs who took advantage of now all the defunct mine tunnels. This was known as bootleg coal mining, Small independent teams would buy up these old mines so they could go down and salvage what was left. So these were often kind of underfunded, underregulated. They didn't have any real rules that they had to follow. So it was, you could probably make some good money at it because now you, you, know, you had four guys in this little company as opposed to hundreds probably. And, you know, there was still, in some of these places, there was still plenty of coal left to get. But, man, you didn't have, you know, you had nothing... You had no, you know, you had no kind of blanket to fall on, as you will see with a lot of these bootleg mining operations. Dave Fellon was the co-owner, along with Eugene Gibbons, of the Fellon Coal Company. On that August morning in 1963, his small four-man team would show up at Anita Slope Number 2, inspect the entrance, and start their day. Fellon and Bova were both experienced miners, while Throne was new to the industry, but had found a mentor and somewhat of a father figure in Felon. At 7.30 that morning, the three would enter the mine while a fourth man, George Walker, stayed above ground to receive the coal cart, empty it, 
and send it back down. It took them about half an hour to fill the cart and send it back up to the surface. Walker did his job and sent it back down. On its way back down, the cable snapped, taking out support beam after support beam. This started a chain reaction which would bury the three miners in an avalanche of rock, wood, and other debris. Felon, Throne, and Bova were quickly buried 331 feet underground. At the time of the cave-in, Felon and Throne were on one side of the cart tracks and Bova was on the other side. When the dust settled, Felon and Throne found they were separated from Louis Bova. They called out his name but never got any answer. It seemed it was just Day Felon and Hank Throne, alone with nothing but the lights on their helmets which would not last long. It took only a few hours for their headlamps to die, and shortly after that, they resorted to the fireproof matches. And then, after the glow of Felon's watch, it was pure darkness. Not only was it dark, but cold. The never-ending moisture and insulating rocks underground kept the mine at a constant 50 degrees. They continued to try to communicate with Louis Bova, but to no avail. Above ground, co-owner Eugene Gibbons was trying to mount a rescue. The Felon Coal Company had no funds to pay for a rescue, so he had to ask federal and state agencies to mount such a rescue. And they did. It ended up costing $60,000. And that's $60,000 in 1963 money. The first day, nothing much happened. Black damp, which is uh, it's essentially just noxious gas that is poisonous when you kind of breathe it in for too much. So. For that first day, they just had to use fans to kind of ventilate and clear out the area. It took rescuers days to start an adequate rescue attempt, as smaller cave-ins kept impeding their progress. That, coupled with getting the proper equipment to the site, meant it would take days to reach the miners. Keep in mind, the people on the surface didn't even know if they were alive at this point. With so many aftershocks and smaller cave-ins, the rescuers wanted to seal off the slope and bore a new entrance to pull the miners out. The plan was risky, and it was predicted to take up to 50 days to pull off, far too long for the miners to survive. With the help of Dave Felon's brother, Joseph Felon, they came up with another plan. Joseph surmised that if anyone had survived, it would be because they took shelter in a monkey shaft. Using Brother Felon's expertise and knowledge of the mine, they decided to drill strategic holes in search of the trapped men. With the help of a Bucharest Erie 50R, a massive 11-story crane with a drill on the end, they started their attempts. They would also need a bit that could widen the borehole more than its 6-inch diameter. They found one in Texas, owned by the Hughes Tool Company, which was owned by none other than billionaire Howard Hughes. They started boring holes at 6.30pm on Sunday, August 17th, five days after the accident occurred. On the third hole, Felon and Thorn were discovered. The six-inch borehole would become their lifeline. Food, water, lighting, and other supplies were lowered down to them. They were also given access to a microphone so they could communicate, and a camera was also lowered down to observe the men's conditions. To get the two men out, the rescuer's first idea was to lower metal capsules down in which the men would get into and be pulled up. However, upon inspecting the widened borehole, they found it was full of jagged rocks and ragged edges. Without a smooth bore, the capsules would not fit. 
Instead, they lowered down specially made coveralls, one for Felon and one for Thorn. They put on the coveralls, greased themselves up, and were carefully and slowly pulled up to safety. On August 27th, 14 days after the cave-in, both Dave Felon and Hank Throne were rescued from the mine. Throne was pulled out at 2.07 a.m. and Felon at 2.41 a.m. At first, all was well. The two men were rescued. People cheered and cried tears of joy as Felon and Throne were taken to the hospital. Not all the tears were happy, though. What had become of Louis Bova? The camera they had lowered down had picked up an image of what appeared to be a body in miners' clothing. An officer of the Independent Miners Association, Andrew Drabitko, volunteered to go back down the borehole and investigate. At the time, he wanted to remain anonymous to keep his family from worrying. Because of this, he went under the moniker of Miner X and was taken to the site in a truck with a cover over his head. They also erected a temporary canopy, like, like a blind, around the borehole in order to keep his identity secret. Miner X was lowered down the hole into the collapsed mine, only to discover it was no body. It was only some old mining clothes and a miner's helmet. Louis Boba's remains have never been found. Because of this, it wouldn't take long for rumors of cannibalism to spread into Felon and Throne's lives. A sensational article out of a Chicago newspaper had surmised that the two surviving miners had eaten Bova's body in order to survive. Dave and Hank refuted this allegation, stating they ate wood splinters and drank putrid sulfur water in order to stay alive. Even though these rumors have been widely refuted and debunked, there are some that believe that Felon and Throne did practice cannibalism and hid Bova's remains. It would be something that would haunt the men for the rest of their lives. The strangeness doesn't end there. Upon giving interviews of their harrowing experience, both Throne and Felon would give separate accounts of what they saw those five days in the darkness. So yes, they were there for 14 days, but only five out in the darkness. Remember, after the mine the rescue team got to them, they had supplies. They would first see men dressed in spacesuits with lanterns on their heads. These beings stood on a staircase that appeared to rise so high it went out of the miners' vision. Whenever they tried to make their way towards the beings, they just got further and further away until they dissipated into the darkness. Then, on the fifth day, they saw the door. The men stated a door appeared to them in the inky blackness. The door was outlined in a bright blue light. Three men, who they said did not look like miners, but more like lumberjacks with thin lips and pointy ears, opened the door. Behind was a beautiful marble staircase. There was another person they saw down in that mine. Pope John XXIII had passed about two months before the cave-in. Both Felon and Throne claimed to have seen a visage of the Pope, only much younger than he was when he died. Felon, who was somewhat religious, recognized the man. However, Throne did not know who he was until he saw a picture of the Pope after they were rescued. Dave Felon said that he saw the man down there with them, acknowledged it, and then went about survival. Dave went on to say that he was always there, the Pope, behind Dave's right shoulder in the dark. 
Whatever these visions were, be it shared hallucinations, side effects of drinking poison sulfur water, brain activity from their bodies going in the shutdown mode, or was it people from the hollow earth? The fact remains that the men always stood by what they saw. Felon would also go on to say he saw other, more vile things down in the dark, but he would never talk about them, and he took those secrets to his grave. Dave Felon would pass on March 29, 1990, two weeks before his 85th birthday. Hank Throne would die at the age of 63 in May of 1998. As I said, Louis Bova's body was never found. His tombstone is erected as a memorial at the site of the mining disaster. And that is, quite frankly, the crazy story of the Shepton Mine. Uh, there was another, I didn't put in the notes because I was confused as to when it happened, but they also talked about seeing three men who were very well built and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and they were given some sort of some sort of plaque, and I think it was all like, they never found the plaque, and so I was just confused of when that happened, if that was part of when the door appeared, or if that was when the three were seen with the lighting helmets on it, so I didn't really go into it much, but get the book and check out that account and everything else that happened. It is a tremendous book. It is a tremendous story. And it's not the only story where miners have been trapped and have reported seeing beings down there with them that they can't, they can't quite get to. Uh, it happened all the time, you know, and the, the great thing about it, like one of the big things, the big theories is that these guys, when your body is going, it goes into a survival mode after a while because it's not getting nutrients, it's not getting water. So it just kind of shuts down and just goes, you know, we're, we're just, you know, um, skeleton crew body. We're just going to make it through. And they were down there in the dark, essentially in... A shutdown mode and after a while your brain has to do something like it's in there it's in the dark it's not you know it's it's doing the bare minimum to keep you alive and after a while you just start hallucinating and seeing things because your brain activity is just your brain is just trying to do something but that's a great theory it's a great idea I try not to say theory because theories are thought out and have uh, evidence and backing and you know something this is just an idea um, but they saw the same thing, you know, in separate interviews, they said they both saw the same things. Their stories were always the same. Their stories were always straight. You could argue that they sat in the dark and made up the story, you know, but I feel that if you're in that situation and you're 300 feet below the surface of the earth in the dark in a 14 by 9 you know kind of clear clearing in this in this mine in this cave in your 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 brain is not thinking about oh how are we going to spin this when we get out to make a great story your brain is thinking survival so i you know I, i'm pretty sure they probably didn't sit down on the ground and go and try to make up some phantasmal story because it didn't help them, you know? 
uh, the cannibalism thing ruined them. You know, no one believed their... A lot of people didn't believe their crazy story of seeing these things down in the mine. But the fact remains that they both saw the same thing. They both reported the same thing. And that, I mean, that's what really grabbed me about it. And I had to grab this book and I had to give it a read. And I really wanted to do it on the show. So here we are with Shept in Mine. We're going to be back very, very soon. And we're going to talk about another mining hat mishap in Centralia, Pennsylvania. And so our second town is, once again, like I said, it's still in Pennsylvania, is Centralia. Uh, it has been known as the Rio Silent Hill, and I don't know, I don't know if it's how true if that's the, if this was the inspiration or not. But if you've ever played any of the Silent Hill games, especially the early ones, like the first three or so, it does bear an uncanny resemblance. Um, if you've ever played those games, you know that when you walk around town, you get to a point that you're not supposed to be able to go to, like it's the end of the map. Then there's just a big cavernous hole in the ground that you just, it's impassable and it's very foggy and steamy. And that rings true for what we're about to get into. Almost a year before the Shepton incident, a very different mining disaster took place. In 1963, in the little town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, a coal fire would start and it still burns to this day. Coal mining started in the area around Centralia in the 1850s. They are in the anthracite coal region in Pennsylvania, which is the purest coal that you can get. And it only really exists in this part of the country, in this part of the world. So it was a big deal, it was a big boom. The mining would become profitable and Centralia would grow into a community of 2,000 761 at its peak in the 1890s. Coal would be the lifeblood of the little town, but it would also be its undoing. On Memorial Day weekend in 1962, the city of Centralia set fire to the nearby landfill. They did this to burn off the smell, as the dump was very close to the Oddfellows Cemetery. They didn't want the odor to disturb the Memorial Day plans. They noticed the next day that the fire was still going. What happened, presumably, was the fire had spread to a nearby abandoned strip mine, setting a major vein of coal ablaze. I say presumably because there are a couple of other ideas as to what has, may have started the fire. In her book, The Day the Earth Caved In, Joan Quigley found some evidence that a garbage hauler had dumped hot embers into an open pit the previous day. She found minutes from a town meeting stating that there were two fires discovered in the dump, and some of the firefighters had submitted bills to erect a clay barrier to protect the surrounding area from fire. However, it fell behind schedule and was never completed. This allowed the embers to get into the mine and start the fire. Another idea posits that a mine fire from 1932 had burned its way into the landfill. This fire was known as the Bass Colliery Fire. This idea was refuted by Frank Sturgill Sr., a bootleg coal miner who mined out Bass Colliery and he never saw any evidence of the fire still going. So I don't think number I don't think the, the Bass Colliery Fire had anything to do with it, but in all reality, 
it could have been a combination of the embers from this guy dumping in where he shouldn't have been and burning burning the memorial and burning doing the memorial day burn because i guess they did it every year to to quash the odor from the landfill uh, i think i mean those two could have easily have combined and you know made one big fire but one of those two if not both of those together started this terrible coal fire in the beginning there were several attempts to barricade the fire they tried filling it with sand and flooding it with water. Then an expensive three-part plan was proposed, but it was abandoned in 1963. And I do think, I mean, if you look at it, if you look it up, uh, you can see that these, all of these plans cost tens of thousands of dollars. That one cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this is in the 60s. Like, imagine something costing $100,000 in 1962. And I think it just came down to Centralia, PA. There's, I mean, it's not a big town. It doesn't have a huge budget and they just didn't have the money. They didn't have the funds to really solve the problem at the beginning. And they did, I believe, erect some sort of clay barrier, but it, I think by the time they got around to it, it was too little, too late. And eventually in the seventies, it would fail. They just, I just don't think they had the money, if, you know, to get at it fast enough. And by the time it became a problem, there was really nothing that they could do about it. Throughout the 60s and 70s, smoke and fumes could be seen sprouting up through the ground. But for the most part, it didn't seem to bother anyone. Over the years, however, the fire slowly and surely crept its way towards town. It wasn't until 1979 when gas station owner and mayor at the time, John Coddington noticed he was losing gas. He tested his tanks and found that their temperature was 172 degrees Fahrenheit. The gas station was on the edge of town, and this was evidence that the fire had made it far enough in the town for many to become concerned. And I think the, I kind of put those two together, one from the dock and one from just some internet research about the temperature and him losing gas. So I think what happened is he, he, it was probably evaporating because of the temperature. The gas was evaporating in the tanks quicker than it normally would. And that was the first sign of things to come. As the fire slowly spread beneath the town, the road started to crack and break up. In fact, the main highway in the town broke up so badly that it had to be rerouted around Centralia. Along with the cracking, there was steam and noxious fumes rising out of the ground all over town. And if you watch the documentary or you watch old footage of Centralia, you'll see uh, these kind of, I don't know, what they're just pipes coming up out of the ground to vent that gas. CO2 quickly became a problem affecting many of the area residents. The cracks in the ground, the fumes, the CO2, all went pretty much unanswered by state and federal levels. It wouldn't be until 1981 when the cogs started to turn. Todd Dabonski was 12 years old in 1981. One day, he was playing in his grandma's backyard when a four foot wide, 150 foot deep sinkhole opened up underneath him. Todd was lucky. As he fell, he grasped a tree root and stopped his fall. At the time, Todd was wearing an orange hat 
Because of this, his 14-year-old cousin, Eric Wolfgang, was able to pull him from the hole. Todd was caked in mud that was baked on so hard it wouldn't even wash off. It would take a few years, but in 1984, the state would essentially buy the town for $42 million. The money was used for relocation and demolition. The town was torn. Half of them wanted to leave, and the other half wanted to stay and actually fix the problem. Over the years, the population dwindled as more and more residents moved away. In 1992, Centralia was taken by eminent domain. Everything in town was now property of the state of Pennsylvania. The remaining residents were now essentially squatting in their own homes. However, they were never really messed with. The government, I mean, the government tried to slowly get them to move out, but they just wouldn't do it. But the government was like, all right, well, mm. In 2016, the remaining residents were allowed to reclaim their homes and were also given the sum of $349,500. In 2018, Centrala had a total population of six. The town now resembled more of a pasture with a few crisscrossing roads and a small number of houses dotted across the land. In 2019, however, researchers started scouring Centrala to study thermophiles. The hot burning ground gives them easy access to these microbes that live in the extreme heat. This has allowed them to do more studies on the microbes to find out how they live and how they got to Centralia in the first place. I've linked it in the show notes. There's a nice little article and there's a, a video. The video is really what you want to watch about what they're doing. So I think what it is is these, these thermophiles, they live in, in heat and sometimes getting access to them is uh, can be tough because you know you got to go to places that are very unhospitable but centrala is like hey we can walk on the ground just underneath us it's hot and they're able to just kind of dig up the ground and take it back and are able to grow these things and study them uh for research purposes and they also want to find out just how they got to centralia anyway because in the video they talk about how like like this hasn't been like this long enough for them to really take hold and so there's there's still something going on under the ground there. The fire still burns today and is slowly heading towards the mountains. In fact, depending on what coal veins are burning, if it reaches the mountains, it may burn for hundreds of years. In that case, how long until the fire reaches another little town? In the future, could we have another Centralia? And I don't know. You know, it all depends if there's there's some veins apparently that will, you know, burn that'll just end and hopefully maybe the fire will end. But if it reaches certain ones and keeps going and hits those mountains, it could burn forward ever. And I only found this on uh, one of the Wikipedia articles, so I don't know how, you know, true it is. But uh, apparently the little town of Bryansville, which is a few miles south has also been abandoned and leveled because of this fire. So if it's going to burn for a hundred, hundreds of more years, it's, I mean, and they don't do anything about it, it probably will reach other towns and really become a problem. But I've always liked that story. Uh, once again, it's one of those things that I, you know, I kind of knew about. Now it's kind of a big deal. 
and a lot of people know about it, and I think other people have done shows on it, and there's a lot of articles and stuff about it, and a lot of books, but I remember when I first heard about this and trying to find info on it years and years ago, there wasn't a whole lot out there about it, but it's nice to see that, you know, that documentary came out. I think it came out in 2010 or 2015. I can't remember because I can't, once again, I can't find a lot of information on it. But if you watch it, uh, Todd Dabonski mentions the year that it is. And so that came out. And so I was looking, I remember looking this up way before that. And there just not being a whole lot. But it's nice that now it's out there and we can do these stories and let people know about it. Um... You're not supposed to visit it, but you can visit it. Um, you can't really drive in the town unless you want your guard to probably like sink into the ground. But you can. There's a little a little stretch of highway that is now deserted, is known as Graffiti Highway, and so it's all sorts. You know, everyone's just spray painted a uh, bunch of stuff on it. So you see that you can get in there, and you can probably walk in the town and walk around and check it out. It's something I would like to do. I think I'm gonna have to make. A Pennsylvania road trip, maybe next spring, and be like, go to Centralia, go to Shepton, and go to, um, oh, what did we talk about? Uh, Kecksburg, way back, like episode 3, 103, and check all those towns out. But those have been our two small towns for this episode. We're going to take a musical break, listen to a little Halloween John Carpenter inspired music, and we're going to come back with the local headlines.
And we are back with the local headlines. Uh, the first two are kind of connecting stories. The first, the first, the second one is an update to the first one. This comes from the Guardian, and I do not. Oh, there it is. Uh, this is written by John Henley from the Europe. He is the Europe correspondent, and this is. And you've probably seen this in the news on your feeds if you look into the stuff that I look into. Uh, six freed after living in Dutch cellar waiting for the end of time. Six adults removed from the house and man, 58, arrested. And there are some Dutch names in here, so, you know, you know how I operate. So forgive me. Uh, a group described by local media as a man and his adult children have been found after spending several years living in the cellar of a remote farmhouse in the northeastern Dutch province of Drenthe waiting for the end of time, in quotes. The group of six were discovered after the oldest son, 25, visited a local bar, the Kasleen Cafe. On the first occasion, 10 days ago, he ordered and drank five beers on his own. The owner, Chris Westerbeek, told broadcaster RTV Drenth. When the man reappeared last Sunday, he looked confused, Westerbeek said. He was unkempt with long tangled hair. We got talking. He said he had run away and needed help and that he had never been to school. Then we called the police. There was no indication of how long they had lived there or the whereabouts of their mother. The Aljamain Dagblad newspaper, the AD newspaper, reported that police were considering the possibility that she may have died and been buried on the property. The bar owner, told the local Dagblad Van Houtenoorn newspaper that the man had said he had younger brothers and sisters living in the cellar. They all wanted to end the way they were living, and he had not been outside for nine years. Drenth police confirmed in a tweet that they had visited a house in the nearby village of Runerwold after being alerted to concerns about the living conditions of a number of people living there in an enclosed space. Six adults were removed and were being taken care of, police confirmed, while a 58-year-old odd-a-job man who was renting the farmhouse was arrested after refusing to cooperate with their inquiry. Named by local media as Joseph B., he is not the father of the young adults, according to police. Several neighbors in the village of 4,000 inhabitants told RTV Drenth they had, they had only ever seen the man who drove an old Volvo car on the property and assumed he lived there alone. Although one said they had seen the young children, there, that was some years ago, and several reported hearing noises from the farm even when the man was absent. One neighbor told the Telegraph newspaper that the man spoke German and was known in the village as the Austrian. The man, who reportedly moved in nine years ago, was very sharp, the neighbor said. You only needed to go near the place and he'd send you packing. He watched everything through binoculars. While Dutch media said the group were a family, a police spokeswoman refused to confirm the exact relationship or that the young adult's father was among them, saying the investigation was ongoing. Our primary concern is for the family members, she said. What exactly happened in the farmhouse is still very unclear. We are exploring all possible scenarios. Citing unnamed sources, RTV Drent said the police had found a hidden staircase leading to the family's hiding place behind a cupboard in the living room. 
The father was bedridden, having suffered a stroke some years ago. It's said the children were aged between 16 and 25. Dutch media said the group appeared to have little or no contact with the outside world and lived a largely self-sufficient life, apparently growing their own vegetables and keeping a goat and geese. The farmhouse owners, Klaas and Alita Roos, told AD, We knew absolutely nothing of this. We had rented the house for years to an individual, and now we learn that this man was living with their children. We have no idea who this can be. The local mayor, Roger D. Groot, told a press conference the situation was extraordinary and that he could give few further details. For the moment, the police have a lot of unanswered questions, he said, adding that most of the family appeared to be registered with local authorities. Police had assessed the situation and found a number of rooms with makeshift furnishings where a family was living in an isolated existence, he said. And so you may have seen that around. It's been floating around for a couple of weeks. But The Guardian, uh, same same writer, John Henley here, did give us an update uh, a little bit ago recently. A family found a Dutch farm could have been held against their will. Dutch police are questioning, questioning an Austrian man after a family of six were found in a secret room at a remote farmhouse in the Netherlands where they are believed to have been living for nearly a decade. The five adult siblings, said to be aged between 18 and 25, and an ailing older man they said was their father, were receiving medical treatment after police discovered them at the farm near the village of Runerwold in the northeastern province of Drenthe. It was unclear whether the family was, as Dutch media reported, waiting for the end of time. Recent posts on social media by one of the children suggested that they may have instead been held in the farmhouse against their will. We found six people in a small space in the house which could have been locked, not a cellar. It is unclear if they were there voluntarily, police said in a statement. They may have been there for nine years. They say they are a family, a father and five children. The statement said none of the six people were registered with local authorities. Their mother had apparently died before the family moved to the farm, said the local mayor, Roger de Groot, adding that he had never seen anything like this. Officials would not confirm local media reports that the family was waiting for the end of days. We understand everyone has lots of questions, the police statement added. So do we. We will investigate properly and carefully. A 50-year-old man who was renting the farm but was not the father of the children has been arrested, police confirmed. But they would not reveal his identity. Dutch media identified him as Joseph B., an Austrian odd job man who had a small workshop on an industrial estate in the nearby town of Meppel. The Austrian foreign ministry has confirmed an Austrian citizen from Vienna was being held in relation to the case, but said he did not want to contact he did not want contact with officials. The ministry did not know the grounds for his arrest, it said. One neighbor told the Telegraph newspaper the man who was seen daily driving an old Volvo car was very sharp. You only needed to go near the place and he'd send you packing. He watched everything through binoculars. Dutch media said the oldest of the children, a 25-year-old named only as Jan, had a Facebook account and began posting updates in June for the first time in nine years. Started a new job at Cironat, the Telegraph newspaper quoted it as saying. The firm, affiliated to another company in Maple, 
was raided by police on Monday and belonged to the Austrian man, the paper said. According to the Algin Daglad newspaper, the son also wrote on LinkedIn that his parents had run a successful business until his mother died in 2004. The group was discovered after Jan visited a local bar, the Castledean Cafe. On the first occasion, 10 days ago, he ordered and drank five beers on his own, the owner, Chris Westerbeck, told the local broadcaster, RTV Drink. When the man reappeared last Sunday, he looked confused. Westerbeck said he was unkempt with long tangled hair. We got talking, he said he had run away and needed urgent help and that he had never been to school, and then we called police. RTV Dritz said police had found a hidden staircase leading to the family hiding behind a cupboard in the living room. The father was bedridden, having suffered a stroke some years ago, it said. Dutch media reported the family appeared to have little no contact with the outside world and lived a largely self-sufficient life, apparently growing their own vegetables and keeping goat and geese. Uh, then everything else is pretty much, a, you know, it's just, this is just the end of the last article. So that's everything that's going on with uh, this story. It kind of started out, everyone was like, oh, it's a cult, and they're waiting for the end times. And I feel like that was just a misquote, that they weren't waiting for the end times, but they didn't want to live their life anymore. It was more of a thing. But that's what's going on over there. So if you've seen that story, that's all the updates on it. And this last story is a pretty good Halloween story. Uh, it's from the Daily Mail UK. Uh, so bear with me because there's so many ads on it that the page is barely working. But this story it was written by Phoebe Eckersley from uh, Mail Online. Look who's talking. Father Fear's creepy ventriloquist doll he was given as a gift is haunted after filming sinister puppet blinking and moving mouth at night. A man feels convinced his sinister antique ventriloquist doll is haunted after CCTV footage showed it blinking. Michael Diamond, 48, was given Mr. Fritz, made by a prisoner at a World War II Stalin IIB camp, which was formerly in Germany three months ago. Mr. Diamond set up a GoPro in the late night hours on September 19th and 20th. After noticing the doll's glass display cabinet, kept opening and side note it's not a doll it's just the head of a doll you can tell when you take a look at the video at least once or twice a week the door kept coming off its latch so he decided to set up a camera just for fun over two evenings the doors to the striking looking doll swung open its heavy eyes which were initially tightly shut sprung open and the lips opened as though the ventriloquist is waiting to say something in the eerie clip. Mr. Diamond said he got weird feelings in his gut, which is hard to describe after replaying the footage. He is not scared of Mr. Fritz, but admitted he is very weary of it and keeps it locked away in his freak room full of collector's items. This includes taxidermied animals, skulls, and ancient weapons. Mr. Diamond added how he gets emotionally attached to his collections and the reason why is a million dollar question. While he is married to Sally and has two children, Amber 19 and Caleb 11, he wants to give his doll a permanent home. I have no idea myself. I don't even know where to start. There are no open windows in the room and no airflow. The door is on a latch, so it shouldn't just swing open. I have told Sally and Amber about it and they don't like it at all. To stop it from happening, I've chained the box up and covered it in a blanket. The father of two speculates that the prisoner who created the doll worked as a ventriloquist before being taken prisoner at Stalag 2B. 
The camp was one of the first Nazi concentration camps in 1933 for German communists, and it went on to become a prisoner of war camp for Polish soldiers from the Pomeroy's army. Mr. Fritz was allegedly taken to America after the end of the war and was owned by an antique shop in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, before arriving in the UK. And I'm going to close this tab because there's so many ads on it that you can might here, listen. I don't know if you can hear that, but you can hear the fan of my MacBook just going insane because of this one, one uh, webpage. But it has a great video on it. Uh, fight through the ads and check it out. And see what you see what you think i've watched it i don't see its eyes blink maybe i'm just not catching it or maybe it's the quality of the gopro maybe it's not picking it up but you can see the mouth move and it looks a little weird it looks a little unnatural to me once again that might just be the quality of the video i'm not sure um you know just because it said it was a gopro doesn't mean it was a gopro but that has been this week's local headlines and we're gonna have a boom here and come back with uh, some listener stories in the form of ye oldie newspapers. So tonight we have a couple of listener stories from Seb up in uh, the Bay Area and uh, got in contact with him through uh, Tyler Nelson from the last episode who sent some stories in. He's the guy that lived in Livermore got me the pictures and all that great stuff so he sent me a couple of ye oldie newspapers from the area and i'm going to read a couple actually he gave me a few so i'm going to read a couple tonight and save the rest for later uh the first one is in marin county or marin california we think up near cummings which used to be called cummings station he wrote uh, a quick little tweet little intro to me the pacific northwest has sasquatch and the Himalayas have the Yeti, but the Bay Area has the weirdest cryptid of all. And we're gonna read uh, a, an article here, and this is from the UCR, the Cal uh, CDNC, the California Digital Newspaper Collection. So keep in mind that this is a, a newspaper article written in 1888, so it might be written a little different than what we're used to. So just, you know, keep that in mind. And this is from the Marin Journal, the Marin Journal, Volume 28, November uh, 22nd, 1888. What can this be? We were furnished the other day with a description of a remarkable being seen in the forest surrounding Cumming Station. Our informant, Mr. Pascaletti, the owner of the largest fig raising ranch in that section. Mr. Pascaletti is the only one who has seen the creature but it is expected that the numerous bodies of men who are hunting for it will soon succeed in discovering its lair. Mr. Pascaletti's adventure is as follows. He was in the woods hunting a few weeks ago, accompanied only by a bird dog. After an unsuccessful morning spot, sport, he sat down behind a large manzita bush to eat his lunch. While thus engaged, he was suddenly startled by a loud bellowing cry at no great distance. The cry he describes as being unlike any other and as the most terrible sound he ever heard. You, uniting the characteristics of a bellow of a bull and the shriek of a maniac, hastily summoning the dog, he clutched him by the throat and covered the head of the faithful animal with his coat to prevent him making any noise. 
and then, crouching low behind the bush, awaited the uncomfortable dread for further developments. It was not long before the crashing of branches and the increased noise of the terrible cries told of the approach of some powerful and savage creature. The bush behind which Mr. Pascaletti was seated was at the head of a glade or small open lane-like space in the wood. Cautiously parting the branches, he peered down the vista and his blood froze with horror as he saw a huge, hairy form bounding with tremendous leaps directly towards his place of concealment. Hurriedly muttering a prayer, he gave himself up for lost when the monster stopped and rearing itself upon its hind legs, gazed attentively around on all sides. Mr. Pascaletti had a full view of it for some minutes, and although faint with terror, was enabled to observe it carefully. Its form was that of a man, the body covered with short, grisly hair. In stature, it was almost at least six and a half feet high. The hair on its head was long and wavy, and its beard reached below the waist. The most remarkable thing was its arms, or rather its arm, for it had an effect but one, although apparently an arm grew from each shoulder, but at the point where the elbows would naturally come, they seemed to join and form there to become one member, at least six feet in length. The point of juncture Mr. Pascaletti observed what appeared to be a metal ring or bracelet. This huge arm was used by the creature in locomotion, as boys used jumping a pole and with its assistance it accomplished the most enormous leaps, twenty feet or more, at a bound. The pair of brass spectacles, fastened securely by a thin iron band riveted behind the head, added to the monster's appearance. An incredible element of grotesque horror. Its survey lasted but a few moments. Suddenly it darted forward and swung itself onto the branches of a tree. In a moment it reappeared carrying in its teeth a large gray squirrel. Then it tore it to pieces and devoured with an evident relish. Mr. Pascaletti says that during this repulsive repast, the creature used its beard over which it seemed to have control, as a horse uses its tail, keeping up constant switching with it to drive away the swarms of flies that filled the air. This seems hardly credible, but we give it for what it's worth. The wild man had almost finished devouring his prey when Mr. Pazzoletti's fingers happened to slip from the dog's throat. The hound uttered a low moan at the sound of the monster, suddenly ceased. Eating listened attentively for a second, and then, seizing the bloody remains of its feast in its mouth, made off into the forest, clearing bushes and logs in its mad course with the ease of a panther. Mr. Pascaletti at once left his hiding place and, more dead than alive, made his way home. It was only at our urgent request that he communicated to us these details. He will not vouch for their accuracy in all particulars. Mr. Pascaletti is a native of Galapagos Islands and speaks almost no English, so that was at times impossible for us to comprehend his meaning. The only reasonable suggestion as to the identity of the strange creature is offered by a late visitor here, an old resident of Salt Lake City, who is inclined to believe that it is T. Clarence D. Featherton, a nearsighted patient who escaped from the insane asylum in that place in the summer of 1859. D. Featherton was a perfectly sane on all subjects, but was possessed with an uncontrollable desire to destroy his spectacles. 
It being impossible to restrain him at home, he was taken to the asylum, where a pair of substantial spectacles were firmly fastened to his head in a manner similar to that which Mr. Pascalelli describes. His arms were then bound together in front of him at the elbows and at the wrist with a single bands of iron. It is conjectured that the limbs thus bound have grown together in time, and the validity of the two consecrated thus into one, having resulted in a growth of abnormal length. This certainly sounds plausible, and it is more than likely that his wild shaggy monster is, an un is the unfortunate T. Clarence de Featherton. So, a uh, deformed escape mental patient who doesn't like glasses, or a Bigfoot with a controllable beard and one large arm, you be the judge. He then sent me, the other one I want to do is, uh, I'd kill for a sausage McMuffin. Speaking of killers, here's an idiot from Marin County, a murderer so bad he came back from the grave and killed his executioner. This one is from the same website. This was originally in the San Francisco Call, uh, October 23rd of 1899 haunted by ghosts of the men he hanged. Amos Lunt, former executioner at San Quentin Prison, becomes a maniac. San Quentin Prison, October 22nd. Amos Lunt, the hangman, has become insane. The steady hand that adjusted the noose around the neck of William Henry Theodore Durant. I love back in the day when people had 16 names and gave the signal that sent the soul of the criminal of the century into an eternity now trembles like an aspen leaf. The eye, once so keen and piercing, wears the haunted, appealing look of a man who realizes that he was being hounded to his doom. His diseased imagination has conjured up the specters of those whom he has executed. The gibbering, mocking ghost of twenty-one blood-stained wretches who flit about him and try to toss over his head the nooses that ended their existence in the flesh. The terrible mental suffering of the famous executioner is something pitiful to witness, and his fellow guards shake their heads sadly as he clubs his rifle and strikes at imaginary foes, saying softly, poor old Amos, too bad, too bad. Five days ago, Lunt first began to manifest signs of insanity, and his condition has steadily grown worse until now the man is a complete mental wreck. Today, it was found necessary to relieve him of the post for which he has been assigned and place Frank Arbogast in place. They are after me, Frank, whispered the demented hangman. There are several under the bed now. A convict is assisting them, and it's only a matter of time until they get me. During these five days, Lunt had refused to light a fire or a lamp in his room, assigning as his reason that it was against the rules for several days, he has refused to eat anything at breakfast time, and very little substance has passed his lips during the day. It is now known that for twelve nights he has not closed his eyes in sleep for fear the specters would wreak their vengeance while he was off his guard. Today, his wife was sent for, from, for San Rafael, and upon her arrival, she had a conference with the warden Aguire and Captain Russell, at the conclusion of which was decided to send poor Lunt to San Francisco tomorrow to see if Dr. What is it? Dr. Barrett could not hold out hopes for the restoration of his mind. In case the physicians give a negative verdict, Lunt will be taken before the Lunacy Commission and sent to an asylum for the insane. The first time the noted hangman was ever known to lose his nerve was at the execution of Harvey Allender. 
this was Lunt's 13th execution, and he explained his nervousness at the time by declaring that he was afraid of the provincially unlucky number. At the execution of John Miller, the hunchback murder of A.L. Knott, the barber, Lunt was also visibly perturbed over the hemorrhage resulting from the rope cutting Miller's jugular vein, seemingly thinking that the accident would be laid to the lack of his foresight. He vehemently asserted that he had told Warden Hale five feet was too great a drop for a man in such poor physical condition. On January 25th of the present year, Lunt won $1,000 in a lottery and, ab and abstained himself from his post of duty for more than the allotted time in celebration of his luck was discharged by Mr. Hale. He remained without employment until two weeks ago when Warden Aguire again gave him a position as a guard. In the executions of which Lunt officiated as hangman, two men, Handsome and St. Clair, were hanged for crimes against the federal government, and he merely supervised proceedings, not placing the rope around their necks. Not including these, Allender would be number 13 on the list, which is as follows. And I'm not going to read all these, but then they give all of the people that he hanged and the date that he hanged them on. And so those have been really great. It's always fun to read ye olde newspaper articles, especially around a place where you used to live and you get to hear all these names like San Francisco and San Rafael and all that great stuff. But that has been this week's Listener Stories. Uh, we're going to have a couple more like that next week and a fun one also from the Bay Area. I'm going to save those for the next episode. And that will be uh, this week's show. And if you have a small town story that you would like to send me, there are plenty of ways to do it. Uh, the easiest way for me to kind of organize them and get them is go to stscast.com. At the bottom of the main page, there is a email form. You can fill out and send it in to me and I can get it on the show. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, you can get on me on social media. Those are uh, at stscast for Facebook and Twitter. I'm most active on Twitter. And the Instagram one is uh, stscast.gram. I have had people send me stuff through Instagram before. You can also go to Reddit. We have, we, why do I keep saying we? I have a, a subreddit there, r slash stscast listener stories, I think. Um, if not, if you can't, you know, find it, then just go to the website and at the bottom of the website, is all the links, you know, the iTunes link is down there, the Spotify link, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit is down there. A bunch of stuff is at the bottom of the page to get to. Uh, that's the easiest way to get to it. Be sure to check out the Episodes tab on the website for uh, sources to everything I've used for this episode and every episode, as well as pictures, all that great stuff. Uh, you can go and buy merch if you want to help support the show. We got T-shirts, we got stickers, we've got phone cases and mugs and all sorts of stuff there. You can also get merch over at the Big Heads Media site if you just want like a simple T-shirt with the logo on it. You can get it there. Uh, what else have we got? If you want to support the show in a non-financial way, then just tell a friend. Get on Facebook. Get on Twitter, and you know, let everyone know that you like the show. Tell people about the show that they should listen. And please, if you find the time to give me a review on your podcatcher of choice, uh, especially iTunes, because that's the big one. 
that's the one that will really help out the show. And uh, one more thing I wanted to mention. So I kind of edit the show as I go. I kind of do the first half and then I stop and I go back and I stitch everything together. And then I place in the music kind of, you know, the music interlude. And then I do the second show. I forgot to tell you guys what monkey holes were uh, in in the Shepton part of the show. So like a monkey hole or a, uh, yeah, a monkey hole is basically just kind of a very quickly built offshoot, a tunnel built off of the main mine tunnels to A, take shelter in in, cor in the course of an accident and B, to just store equipment and supplies in. So when I said monkey hole back like an hour ago, um, that's what those are if you didn't know what those are. But that's the show for right now. I would like to thank everyone for listening. It has been great. Uh, listens and downloads have gone up like 26% since this time last month. So that is phenomenal. And it's all because of you guys that this show is able to keep going and keep growing. And I thank you. I can't thank everyone enough for it. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. We will be back in a couple weeks with episode 7. And that's going to be a fun one. So wait for that. Until then, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.